Welcome this morning. It's a, it's a beautiful day. Even though the sun's not shining, sometimes we can, sometimes these kind of days can, can feel just as beautiful when you've had nothing but sun for a while. It can be refreshing. And then there's other times when we have day after day like this and it's, it gets a little, the opposite of refreshing, I guess you might say, but Today, it feels all right. We're glad to be together in the house of the Lord. Welcome, all of you visitors. And this morning, um, I was on to talk, and Brother David has graciously agreed to take my place. I've uh, Mark 2.27 speaks of how Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. And this time of year, I, I really feel that verse. And I'm very thankful for days of rest. You can turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 25. Brother David has asked, asked to read from a portion of this chapter. So this, this chapter... It is about two days before Jesus' betrayal. So it's, it's not real far ahead of time. And he begins here in this chapter with these words, Then shall the kingdom of heaven be like. And we're going to begin reading in verse 14. And he gives there the parable of the ten virgins. As he's explaining about the kingdom of heaven. And, and trying to help them understand what it's like. And in verse 14, he begins with those same words, For the kingdom of heaven is as a man traveling into a far country who called his own servants and delivered unto them his goods. And unto one he gave five talents, and to another two, and to another one. To every man according to his several ability, and straightway took his journey. I understand that, that he gave them, according to their, I didn't actually look up what that several meant, but according to their abilities, according to what they were capable, uh, he, knew, he knew what they could do, what they could handle. And according to their abilities, he gave and he straightway took his journey. Then he that had received the five talents went and traded with the same and made them five other talents. Likewise, he that had received two, he also gained other two. But he that had received one went and digged in the earth and hid his Lord's money. It doesn't say how long it was. It says after a long time. You know, these guys did pretty good. I don't know whether this long time was a year, whether it was months, or whether it was 10, 10 or 20 years. But anytime you can gain double your money, you know, you're doing pretty good. These guys did all right, even if it was 10 years or longer. They did, they did well. But after a long time, the Lord of those servants cometh and reckoneth with them. And so he that had received five talents, came and brought the other five talents, saying, 
Lord, you gave to me five talents. Behold, I have gained beside them five talents more. The Lord said unto him, Well done, you good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. He also that had received two talents came and said, Lord, thou deliverest unto me two talents. Behold, I have gained two other talents beside them. His Lord said unto him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. And then he which hath received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew you. I knew that you were a hard man, you reap where you have not sown, and gather where you have not strolled, and I was afraid. And when I read this, I just wonder, am I afraid of my master? Like, what's, what is the, because I'm thinking of God here and me as I read through this. And what's your perception as God gives you talents? As God gives you whatever it is, maybe maybe it is financial, maybe it is physical talents, maybe it's spiritual gifts, talents, um, and how you want to relate this to your own life personally. But what's your perception of God? Am I afraid? Why was he afraid? <clears throat> Do I? Am I afraid that I will mess up? And so I do nothing. Do you ever, do you ever feel that in life? Like, you can take that into whatever aspect you wanted to, but many times we're afraid to take a risk because of fear of failure. But fear of failure leads to complacency. And when we do that in the kingdom, we're kind of like this man. And God's calling us this morning to use what he's given us for his glory. And I assure you that if you are using it for his glory, there will not be failure. Sometimes it may feel like failure to us in certain moments and in times. But ultimately, when we use what God has given us for his glory and not our own, he will be pleased and he will respond as he did with these first two servants here in this chapter. But this last servant says, I was afraid and went and hid your talent in the earth. Lo, here you go. Thou hast, that is thine. You get it back. Now how excited would any of us be to have made that kind of investment in someone Fear of failure leads to complacency. His Lord answered and said unto him, You wicked and slothful servant. There was slothfulness involved here. Sometimes that can be what it is in our life. It's laziness. It's a lack of motivation, of, of being willing to get up and put forth some effort.
You knew that I reaped where I sowed not and gathered where I have not strawed. You should have therefore put the money to the exchangers and then at my coming I should have received my own with usury. Take therefore the talent from him and give it unto him which hath ten talents. For unto every one that hath shall be given. And he that hath abundance, and he shall have abundance. But from him that hath not shall be taken away even that which he hath. And cast ye the unprofitable servant into outer darkness, and there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For the Son of Man shall come in his glory, picture this, and all the holy angels with him. Then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory, and before him shall be gathered all nations, and he shall separate them. One from another, as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. You know, this doesn't sound like a very difficult thing to do, does it? I mean, sheep and goats are really obvious. Now, there's, there's no gray areas here. It's not going to be hard for God to decide. You're separating sheep from goats, and it, it's not hard. And what are you this morning? There will be no sheep but those that have accepted the blood of Jesus Christ, that have been covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. He shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on his left. You know, I think about how sometimes we can get confused. I, I heard this story, and I'm not going to remember it very well. I cried a little bit when I was sitting back there on the chair, but... I, I heard it about a man who bought a, bought a sheep, and he took it home, and he put it in his pasture, and he had a lush green pasture, but the one end was a wet hole, and the, it went, and it, it laid in that wet hole, and it was covered in mud, and day after day, it laid in the mud, and he didn't know what to do. He said he couldn't even see his sheep. It was so muddy, and he called the vet, and he says, my sheep won't get out of the mud. He says, I've got a, a nice green pasture just lays in the mud. Something's terribly wrong with my sheep. And the, the vet asked him some questions. You know, to, He said, can you tell me a little more about your sheep? He says, no, I, there's nothing to tell you. He's, he's still covered in mud. There, all you can see is his eyes. And his vet, the vet says, how long has he been there? He says, well, it's been weeks. And he said, the vet says, well, it's not a sheep. It's a pig. And, and when, if you're laying in the mud, if you want to always lay in the mud, sometimes we can find ourselves believing, kind of like that man did, that he had bought a sheep. And sometimes we can believe that in our own lives. We need to be understanding by their fruits you shall know them he shall set the sheep on the right hand and the goats on the left and they shall the, the king shall say to them on the right hand come ye blessed of my father inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world for I was hungry and you gave me meat I was thirsty and you gave me drink I was a stranger and you took me in People, these aren't things that you need to worry about trying to do and whether you're doing it enough and whether you're going to the nursing home enough and whether you're, like, that shouldn't be your biggest concern. 
Our biggest concern should be, am I a sheep? Do I know Jesus? Because if you have the relationship with Jesus, if you have been changed, you're going to live this Sometimes we need to look into the eyes of Jesus. Naked and you clothed me, sick and you visited me, I was in prison and you came unto me. And then shall the righteous answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungered and fed or thirsty or gave thee drink? When did we see you a stranger and took you in or naked and clothed you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and came to you? And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, and as much as you have done it unto the least of these, my brethren, you have done it unto me. And I just believe that we are called as believers to treat everyone this way. And so maybe we don't specifically target certain people, but this should be our life. This should be our heart. This should be our attitude. Every day, we are willing to feed and to clothe and to visit. Then shall he say unto also unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, cursed into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no meat. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was stranger, and you took me not in. Naked, and you clothed me not. Sick, and in prison, and you visited me not. Then shall the Lord... Then shall they also answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee a hungered or a thirst or a stranger or naked or sick and in prison and did not minister to you? Don't look for what you're just sure is Jesus to feed. Don't look for the big moment. Look for every moment. Take advantage of every moment to feed the hungry. Then shall he answer them, saying, Verily I say unto you, and as much as you did it not unto the least, one of the least of these, you did it not unto me. And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous unto everlasting life. Where are we heading today, folks? Praise God. By the grace of Jesus, we have a great hope of everlasting life. Are there any prayer requests this morning? Yes. Anyone else? Let's, yes. Uh, President Trump. Hey, President Trump, yes. Yep. Okay. Let's kneel in prayer. <laughs>
Heavenly Father, we pause before you this morning with thankful hearts. We acknowledge you as the one true God, the creator of earth and of every one of us. We thank you for your provision. Thank you for Jesus and for the hope that he gives of a future with you and the hope that he gives us in our moment by moment each day here as we live on this earth and we just thank you father for every person here this morning for every heart and i just pray that your holy spirit would minister to every need through the message not through the words of david but but through the the voice of your holy spirit lord that they would speak uh, comfort, strength, and challenge, conviction, and wherever it's needed. Lord, give us hearts, ears to hear, and hearts to receive. Lord, I pray for the prayer requests that were given this morning, the Glenn Frick family and, and their situation. Lord, I pray that you would be strong and that you would receive glory in what they are going through. Father, I just want to hold up the leaders of our country. They're in, uh, they're in difficult places as they make many decisions and there's, there's many opinions among the people of this country. And Lord, I just pray that you would give strength and that your will would be done. Father, I pray for the health of President Trump and for his family, Lord, that you would give them healing according to your will and Lord that this nation would continue to honor you through the hearts of the people and the actions of the people Lord that your Holy Spirit would just create revival in hearts Lord we pray for the Grandview congregation this morning as they develop relationship that no doubt will have some difficult conversations and, and maybe people that don't always know what to say or how to say, Lord, that you would give them words to speak of, of truth and of love, that your Holy Spirit would just would draw and, and be glorified through that congregation in, in Victor's life. Thank you for the opportunity this morning together in the presence of your spirit. And we just pray that your name would be exalted. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.
Good morning and welcome. Thank you, Brother Clem, for reading that, bringing that chapter to us and talking about the parable of the talents. And today, we're going to be focusing on the parable of the pounds. It's a little different location. It's over in the book of Luke. You're welcome to turn there to chapter 19 in Luke. That's where we're going to be focusing this morning. Brother Clem mentioned that the, in the chronology of events in the New Testament, that the parable of the talents that he was reading about occurred just a few days before his death. In Luke chapter 19, we find that this situation occurs before he got to Jerusalem, several days ahead of that. And chronology is, is an important thing. We, find, we see from that right away that here are two very closely related parables that occurred in very distinctly different places and times, maybe a few days apart. And I gather from that that this is something that was on Jesus' heart. Because he was always teaching us about the kingdom of heaven. And this was an aspect, or many aspects, about the kingdom of heaven that he wanted us to understand. Now, as we read things in the New Testament, there is a, uh, a sense of time, time frame and location and so forth. And we know that Jesus died upon the cross and he rose again. And that we find ourselves looking back to that and looking forward to the time when Jesus who has promised to come again, will return. That is our perspective. That's our, the position that we, that we think about things from. <clears throat> think about the man who was hanging on the cross next to Jesus. One of two thieves that were also crucified there with Jesus. But he had a conversation with Jesus, and he asked him to remember him when he came into his kingdom. And they're both nailed to a cross and within hours of death. And Jesus said, this day, you're going to be with me in paradise, in my kingdom. And then Jesus died. And this man is still alive, crucified on a cross. And he has to be wondering, did Jesus mean what he said? I'm going to die probably today. Did Jesus really mean what he said? Is that really what's going to happen? That was his perspective on those events. But we find ourselves with knowledge that Jesus did die and he rose again and paid all the price for our sins and our hope is secure in heaven. And he promised to come again. And that's our perspective that we're in. And in this parable of the pounds, Jesus talked about a whole series of events covering a great deal of time. And in the, <clears throat> in the time in between from when he rose again until he comes again, that occurs inside of this parable. And that's where you and I are. And the question, one question that I get from this that you see here, am I a servant or a citizen? Because these two types of people are talked about in this parable. And it's going to be important that we understand it, that we know that we are a servant or that we're a citizen. Well, let's clarify the, the understanding of the words just a little bit. And I want you to answer 
give me some, some input here a little bit. Think about the word citizen. If you're a citizen of a country, and let's just make it specific to the United States, because I think most of us here, if not all, are citizens of the United States. If you're a citizen of the United States, now tell me, what does that mean? Someone answer. It can be one word answers, that's okay, but it can be, you can fill it out though as well. What does it mean to be a citizen of a country, in this case the United States? Taxes, yes, that the government <laughs> passes laws and we, we pay taxes. Okay, that's, that's part of being a citizen. You're responsible, yes, go ahead. You're born as a citizen in this country, you have rights. Or if you become a citizen, you have rights. Pardon? That as a citizen, you're expected to have loyalty to that nation that has given you those rights and that position. Okay, so those are some of the, anything else, but those are some of the important things. Anything else come to mind there? You belong, which you could also say that means you're protected. So as a citizen, you have rights under that government or that country, but you also have the belonging that provides the protection of that. And along with that goes another thing called responsibilities. And so <clears throat> you have a, a number of things that are afforded to you as a citizen. You have rights, you have protection, you have responsibility. Uh, we tend to be people who are uh, uh, self-reliant, self-determining. We have choices. And that's what being a citizen kind of means. Now, let's contrast to that. What does a servant mean? What does it mean to be a servant? You serve what? <laughs> okay, it could be an entity that you're serving. It could be a person that you're serving or an idea that you're serving or something. But you're, you're, what does it mean to serve? To give not for yourself, is that what you said? Okay. <clears throat> and that is the concept of what you're doing is not totally just for your benefit, but it's for someone else's benefit. Anything else about a servant? What he's describing is the contract of like a bond servant or someone who created, there was a contract made and for a certain length of time they're going to serve. That, that is one type of servant as well. Okay, these are all some good thoughts. So there's, is, there's quite a bit of difference between a servant and a citizen. So let's go into Luke chapter 19 and let's, let's look at this a little bit. <clears throat> in, this, in this chapter, when it talks about a servant here, in the type of word that is being used here in the Greek, it is referring to a servant who is not a slave in the sense of you can never get out of this or you, you have no choice you're, or you're like you're in, in a prison or something. It's, it's a servanthood and a bondservant position, but it's because you want to be there and you want to serve and you're willing to do those things <clears throat> lovingly and joyfully and faithfully. So let's look at Luke chapter 19. We're just going to pick this up in verse 11. 
Because what's happened here is that Jesus had just come through Jericho. He had met Zacchaeus. He went to Zacchaeus' home. Zacchaeus was a converted, became a converted Jew, believer in Jesus Christ, and repented, and his life completely changed. And they left Jericho, and they're on their way up to Jerusalem. So they're walking along. Verse 11, we'll, we'll pick it up here. And as they heard these things, he added and spake a parable. Because he was nigh to Jerusalem, and because they thought that the kingdom of God should immediately appear. He said, therefore, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. And he called his ten servants. Now, let me back up just a little bit. Let's always keep in mind. When Jesus is speaking like this, he's teaching a parable. It has a context in reality and in things that we consider life experiences, but he's explaining a teaching about the kingdom of heaven. So these sentences are loaded with all kinds of information. So in verse 13, And he called his ten servants and delivered them ten pounds and said unto them, Occupy till I come. But his citizens hated him. And sent a message after him, saying, We will not have this man to reign over us. And it came to pass that when he was returned, having received the kingdom, then he commanded these servants to be called unto him to whom he had given the money, that he might show how much every man had gained by trading. Then came the first, saying, Lord, thy pound hath gained ten pounds. And he said unto him, Well, thou good servant, because thou hast been faithful in a very little, have thou authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, thy pound hath gained five pounds. And he said likewise to him, Be thou also over five cities. And another came, saying, Lord, behold, here is thy pound, which I have kept laid up in a napkin, for I feared thee, because thou art an austere man. Thou takest up that thou laidest not down, and reapest that thou didst not sow. And he saith unto him, Out of thine own mouth will I judge thee. Thou wicked servant, thou knewest that I was an austere man, taking up that I laid not down, and reaping that I did not sow. Wherefore thou then gavest not thou my money into the bank? that at my coming I might have required mine own with usury. And he said unto them that stood by, Take from him the pound, and give it to him that hath ten pounds. And they said unto him, Lord, he, he hath ten pounds. For I say unto you, that unto every one which hath shall be given. And from him that hath not, even that he hath, shall be taken away from him. But those mine enemies which would not that I should reign over them, bring hither and slay them before me. Let's back up to verse 11. We'll call this the context. As they were walking along from Jericho to Jerusalem, this message was on Jesus' heart. He had many times told them that I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be killed. 
and I'm going to rise the third day. He'd explain some of those things. But he wants them to understand some more things about this. And he also recognized that there was a huge anticipation, a huge expectation in these men's hearts that there was going to be a material kingdom come about and that Jesus was going to be the king of that. And some of them thought, well, that, won't that be amazing because we'll be part of that kingdom and we'll get to rule with him. And, and others thought, well, this will be fantastic because this is the way we're going to get rid of Rome. And there was all sorts of ideas and expectations about this kingdom that was going to come. And surely maybe this is going to be the time he's going to go to Jerusalem, the capital of Israel, and it's going to be Passover. There's going to be lots and lots, thousands and hundreds of thousands of people there. It'll be a great time for Jesus to set up his kingdom. And Jesus maybe overheard these things, or he, as he often did, he knew what was on their heart. And so he began to talk while he was walking there. <clears throat> so that's the context. <clears throat> now listen to the details that he gives them, because this is absolutely loaded. When you think of it in terms of a kingdom of heaven understanding. And he says, a certain nobleman... And, and we're going to portray that, understand that, that he is talking about Jesus Christ, the Messiah himself. In this setting, he is the certain nobleman. And he sa says he went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. Now, may, we don't think that they probably understood all of that in terms of the chronology and the history and, and and all that we understand now from our perspective. But what he's saying there is that there's going to come a time when the, when the Christ, as he had explained, is going to be killed. I'm going to rise again, and I'm going to leave. And I'm going to bring the Holy Spirit to be told him later on as he got up into the upper room and so forth, that the Holy Spirit must come. <clears throat> but he's describing this picture of this king, this nobleman himself, leaving and going into a far country for the purpose of receiving a kingdom and to return, to come back. <clears throat> One of the fascinating things about this is that he was also relating this in a real-time uh, historical context because they were subject to Rome at that time. And for someone to become a ruler all over the Roman colonies, you had to petition Rome to, this, to Caesar to become a ruler over a region. Even if you were a, 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 a general who had overran a country, you still had to work it out with Caesar and with Rome as to who was going to be the leader over that area. And so as they're walking there, they're also probably thinking, is he talking about uh, going to, to Rome or someone going to Rome and, and trying to seek a, seek a government or seek the control of an area because that was a real context. And so he's placing these thoughts in that Roman context that he would go to Rome or someone would go, be going to Rome or going to a far place and come back and then have his kingdom. So let's go into the next verse here. <clears throat> And he called his ten servants and delivered them ten pounds and said unto them, Occupy until I come, till I come. Now in this situation, being a nobleman, being a person of high birth, being a person of great wealth, and of having many servants, 
and he was going to be leaving and going into a far country. He was going to, he was going to distribute some of his goods, some of his valuable things among some of his servants because he knew there was certain ones especially who had special talents to take care of those kinds of things. And so he gives unto each one of them a pound. And he said unto them, Occupy till I come. So what is a pound compared to a talent? So we're making reference now to this other story that Jesus told some days later. In this case, he says he distributed one pound to each of ten servants. So let's look at this. In our reading, and I don't know how to justify this exactly, but in our reading we found that one pound, which is also known in the Greek as a minya, equals three months value of wage. And that's equal to one-sixtieth of a talent. So this is something that's way less, 60 times less than what a talent is. <clears throat> and let's do the math. And maybe some of you have already figured out the math here a little bit. So if, so if this is what a pound is, three months wage worth, it's one-sixtieth of a talent. What is a talent? So a talent <clears throat> is if you take the three months times 60, which we get from this right up here, equals 180 months of wage value. You divide that by 12 months in a year, and that equals 15 years of wage value. So we told us over in the book of Matthew that the first servant that he gave five talents to, five times this number, 75 years worth of wages is what he gave to that first servant in Matthew 25, a few days later in that story. But in this story, he's giving them something that seems pretty little in comparison. Jesus was telling a very similar story, very similar parable, but he, he put it in a context of very small worth and very huge worth in Matthew because the, the quantity was not the point. What it comes down to is faithfulness, as we get into this a little bit further, of how the servant was faithful with whatever it was, with the very little or the extremely valuable that the servant was faithful that's one, of, one lesson that connects those two together, but, but the context that he put it in is quite different. <clears throat> now, you also might wonder here, he only talks about three when he gets into the, the accounting later on. But you have to, under, you have to realize that probably in that, in that sense, you, he's helping us or letting us assume that all, everyone else had similar situations, that some gained some and some didn't. <clears throat> but in this case, he takes aside 10, he gives each of them one pound, but then he gives them an instruction. He says to occupy. And if you go into other, uh, other translations, some of you maybe have a book and a Bible in front of you, it'll say, do business till I come. Take this money, take this valuable thing, do business with it till I come back. It might be a few months. And when you were going to Rome, it took several months to get there sometimes, depending on what time of the year you were trying to get there. And so it could have been a few months out, a few months back. There may have been some time in Rome. Maybe it was a year later that he would come back. 
but he told them to occupy, to do business with this money, this valuable thing, till I come back. And that is the situation that you and I are in. Again, this is a kingdom of heaven context. In between the time of when the Lord was here and the Lord is coming again. And his instructions to his believers are to occupy, to do business till I come. What is the business of the kingdom? What is the business of the kingdom that I'm supposed to be doing? And our brother read that in Matthew chapter 25. As that chapter ended, he was talking about separating the sheep from the goats. And he talked about those that, when, when I was hungry, when I was sick, when I was in prison, when I was a stranger, and you, you took care of me, or you didn't take care of me. See, these are, these are the issues of business in the kingdom. And he says, while I'm gone, do business, occupy be involved, be investing, be working in the business of the kingdom. Let's go to the next verse. The next verse is the reaction of these citizens, different than the servants. But his citizens hated him, and sent a message after him, saying, We will not have this man to reign over us. In other translations, when it says sent a message, it also says sent a delegation. This is where it's interesting where Jesus was walking when he's telling this. Because in just a few years back, there's a piece of history that probably all of the men he's walking with remembered. There was a man named Archelaus, one of the sons of Herod the Great. Remember, Herod the Great was alive and ruling over Israel when Jesus was born, some 30 years before. Well, he dies. His kingdom is divided up. One of his sons named Archelaus decides he wants to rule over an area, so we might call it Judah. He goes to Rome to petition Caesar and the Roman government so that he could become the ruler. The Jews in the area hated him. And they sent a delegation of people on a months-long journey to go and be at Rome. When Archelaus shows up in front of Caesar, they wanted to be there to make the case, we hate this guy, he is unqualified, we don't want this man to reign over us. He ends up getting the kingdom. And he goes back and builds a palace near Jericho and becomes the ruler. He was so inept, he was so rotten to the core, he was so tyrannical that Rome recognized it. They threw him out, they replaced him with somebody else. And by the time we get to this point in history, when Jesus is coming toward Jerusalem, Pontius Pilate is the man who's ruling over this area. He was the fifth replacement for Archelaus. So this is all happening within the last 30 years. And all these men that he's walking with, maybe they just walked past Archelaus' house, his palace. And they would remember that time when they sent a delegation to Rome to say, we don't want this man to reign over us. But he was given that kingdom anyway.
So what do we know so far in this parable? We know there's a certain nobleman will, will say, I believe, is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ finished his work in this earth. He left, and he's coming again. And we also have servants here. They are trusted individuals subject to the nobleman. They were entrusted with some valuable things, and they were told to occupy, to do business with the things that you have while I'm gone. And we have some people called citizens who hate him. And you are expressing their will and saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. Is that person the citizen in the world today? Am I a citizen? Am I a servant? This, this is the phrase that really hit home to me as read, in reading this. That a person would say, I will not have this man, Jesus Christ, God, to rule, to reign over me. In what way do I, just say, do I say to Jesus Christ, I don't want you to rule over me. I'll believe in you. I'll understand you. I understand who you are. But I really don't want you to rule, reign over me. I hope that nobody sitting here has ever done that, has ever written to God, has ever telegraphed to God, has ever projected something to God, has ever sent any kind of a message to God and said, I don't want you to rule over me. You could be an atheist that doesn't believe there's any God at all. But, but we pray to God that there's no one who would call themselves a believer but would ultimately say, you know, in this little area, I don't want you reigning over me. I've got this habit. I've got this thing. I've got this room. I've got this possession. I've got this something in my life. And you can, you can be involved in everything else, but you can't reign over that. <clears throat> we just pray the Holy Spirit to search in your heart Am I a servant or am I a citizen? Because there's a very different outcome for each. Just think about your relationship to God. Are you subject to God? Are you subject to his will? Are you subject to his direction? Or do you prefer to make your own plans? Go your own way? Make your own decisions? And you, you are self-determining? Those are two different, very different relationships. Am I, a, am I a servant or am I a citizen?
verses 15 to 26, and we're not going to go back and reread all those. This is when the king, the nobleman, returns, and he asks those servants to come before him to give account of what they'd done with this valuable thing. And you might say that it's a little thing, or it's only three months' wage worth, but he expected them to do business with it. And, he go, and it goes through three of those, seven, those ten servants. And it, the first one <clears throat> comes to him and said, Lord, um, here is here, the first saying, Lord, thy pound hath gained ten pounds. Notice they all say, thy pound. The thing that you gave me, Lord, it, it belonged to you. It still belongs to you. It wasn't me. I'm just a servant, a steward over what you gave to me. And the thing that you gave to me, it's produced ten is what the first servant says. And he says, thou good, he says, well, thou good servant, because thou hast been faithful in a very little, have thou authority over ten cities. And everyone's mouth dropped open. What an incomparable award, a reward to be given <clears throat> What the first one had said, the one three months value that you gave me is worth 10 times or 30 months value. So, you know, two and a half years worth. Still not a huge amount. And yet the reward was authority over 10 cities. No comparison. Absolutely no comparison. There's no way to put that in the same context. How in the world because it's not in the world, it's in the kingdom, <laughs> was this reward given for what seemingly would be such a small thing. But because they were faithful in the very little, they were given authority over ten cities. And the next one comes, and again he says, Lord, thy pound hath gained five pounds. And he gives them the same kind of reward. He gives them five, authority over five cities. And the, verse 20, the, the other, the third one came and said, Lord, behold, here is thy pound. He recognized that. It's yours. It's your value. It's your valuable thing that you entrusted in me and you told me to do business with it. It belongs to, belonged to you. It still belongs to you. And I just wrapped it up and hid it in a drawer somewhere. And he condemns him out of his own words because the man goes on and expressing his fears and He's saying, well, you're, you're like this. I mean, I mean, you just make money everywhere. It just it doesn't make any sense at all. It just things happen. And he was blaming the nobleman. He's blaming God for who God is. And the nobleman turns it right back on him. It's in his very words, I will judge you. Why didn't you at least put it in the bank? To do something with it. To do some business with it instead of wrapping it up and sticking it in a drawer. This is the... <clears throat> as we, as servants of the Lord, <clears throat> hear these things and, and recognizing that the Lord is prepared to reward us in ways that are unimaginable, but He expects us to do something with what He has given to us.
Let's go to verse 27 and bring this down to the end here. But those mine enemies, the citizens had now become his enemies, which would not that I should reign over them, bring hither and slay them before me. Now you'll take note here that the third servant who was not faithful with the thing that was given to him, and it was taken away from him and given to someone else, but he was still a servant. It doesn't indicate here that he was slain among the citizens that hated him. But in verse 27, you have this command to the very ones that stated that I I should not rule over them, bring them before me and slay them. That had to sound extremely harsh, even to the disciples walking from Jericho to Jerusalem. Is there some kind of context of this sentence in the kingdom? I want you to uh, turn with me to Revelation chapter 14. This may be a a little uh, verse, couple verses here that you may not have seen before. Revelation chapter 14. The question is, is there a context for the slaying of the citizens who would not be reigned over in front of the king? Revelation chapter 14, 9 through 11, it says this, And the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast and his image, and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And we'll read one more. And the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day nor night, who worship the beast in his image, and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. That's an incredible picture of those who had chosen to not worship God, but to worship Satan, are going to be tormented with fire and brimstone night and day forever and ever in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. It just amazes me that Jesus could tell so many things in just a few words, a few sentences, and covers such a tremendous history of, of his time upon earth and the time in between until he comes back again and what we should do and the, where the final judgment is going to go. And that this little detail about bring them in in front of me and slay them in front of me is prophetically written in the book of Revelation. Do you think the holy angels and the lamb would do that in front of them because they enjoyed it? Is this something that God would just enjoy watching? I don't think so at all. But God in his perfection, who is all love but also all judgment, 
and perfect in all those ways. This is the judgment for unbelief. <clears throat> and we have the only, another way that I could connect to understand what Jesus' mind would be in, this, in that setting would be if you've held your spot in Luke chapter 19, later on in the same chapter, Jesus comes around Jerusalem there. He, he's looking over the city. It says, when he has come near, he beheld the city and wept over it in verse 41. And why did he weep over Jerusalem? Because he knew what was about to happen. He knew that he was about to be killed as our substitute and to rise again and to go to a far country and to get his kingdom. But he wept over the city. Why? Because he said, because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. <clears throat> that same weeping over the ones who had rejected him and would not be reigned over. Because that's what the Jews were about to do, was to demonstrate they did not want him to reign. And it was that, that heart of weeping. I think that same heart is there in the book of Revelation. As, he, as they are watching the destruction night and day, the holy angels and the Lamb, not because they enjoy it, but out of weeping. And here these people are being tormented night and day forever and ever in front of the Lamb who was their salvation, but they had chosen not to believe. Mm. I want to share just a couple other little things, and then we'll close this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, excuse me, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 11 through 15, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 11 through 15, for other foundation can no man lay that is laid which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man build upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, and in contrast to that, wood, hay, stubble. So he's talking about building on the foundation of Jesus Christ, and some will be building gold, silver, precious stones, and some will be building wood, hay, stubble upon the foundation of Jesus Christ. Verse 13, And every man's work shall be made manifest. It will be known, it will be visible. It's going to be quite known to God, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide which he hath built thereon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire." When you read this parable, the pounds, and you see the accounting of those three servants, and the third servant has what he had removed, <clears throat> he's still a servant. It's as if he was saved so as by fire, like this passage is telling us. Now, there's another whole set of issues that goes into the judgment seat of Christ and the beam of judgment and all those kind of things. That's a good subject for some other message. We're not going to go there today. But I think there's just some very powerful, soul-searching things here that we'd keep asking ourselves. Am I, do I really have the heart of a servant with Jesus Christ? 
or am I expressing my will and my unbelief to God like a citizen? There's two very different judgments that are going to occur. Let's have a song.